following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Well, I say uh, we should skip preaching and just keep singing. That was, uh, that was great, but we won't. Please turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, that's page number 845. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you, it's good to see you. I feel like it's been a while since I've been up here. I, mean, I know I was just up here last week for a few minutes, but it just feels like it's been a while. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. And then go to the Lord in prayer, asking his blessing on our time in his word. If you're Mark 10, please look at verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And, cross, excuse me, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, we come and just bow before you in a moment just of worship. We thank you for your goodness, your glory. Jesus, thank you for being our wonderful Messiah. Thank you that, as we sang just a few moments ago, that everything we have is by grace and grace alone. We need grace every day to, to live for you, to just make it through this life, and you give it out freely. And we need it this morning. We need to to have your spirit at work in our hearts, helping us to, to see and understand and to, and to, in the end, be more committed to you than we are to anything else around us. And so we ask that your spirit will do that in us now. Help us to see. Give us eyes. Give us ears to hear. And I pray, Lord, that this time would be honoring to you and that your people would walk away understanding more your heart here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're on part two of a three-part sermon series on the issue of divorce that is raised here by the Pharisees to Jesus. And I want to begin this morning by making sort of three observations, if we could, by way of introduction about this uh, subject. And they're separate, but they are related. First, and this is kind of repeating what Chris said two weeks ago, but because two weeks have passed and we tend to forget things very easily, I want to repeat it also for the sake of anyone who was not here at that time. I just want to acknowledge the sensitivity of this subject for all of you sitting in the room here this morning, because it's a very sensitive subject, um, which in a way, though, is kind of a non-statement of sorts, because everybody in this room has been affected by divorce in one way or another, either directly or indirectly. I mean, there are some of you sitting in here right now who have been directly impacted by divorce, okay? You yourselves have gone through it. You yourselves either have been or currently are divorced. And so this isn't a theoretical or philosophical exercise for you. You have 
felt the pain. You have experienced the hurt. You would identify with David Garland's quote about divorce. He says, divorce is like an atomic bomb that leaves deep emotional craters and injures countless bystanders around it with the fallout. And so you would recognize that and you've lived through it. And so you understand this like no other. So for the rest of us in here who have not been directly impacted by divorce, in other words, we have never been divorced, I would be shocked. I would be shocked to find that there is a single person in this room who has not been indirectly impacted by it in some way, shape, or form. I mean, some of you are children of divorced parents. You, you have gone as close as you can get to the hurt of that experience without actually having gone through it personally on your own, and so you you feel it deeply, or perhaps some of you have divorced children. Uh, you have divorced grandparents, divorced aunts, uncles, cousins, friends, neighbors, co-workers. It, it would be almost amazing to me to find a single person in this world today who has not either directly or indirectly been impacted by divorce, and we want to be sensitive to that. And so our goal in this series here, these three sermons, is one, to honestly, openly teach what the Bible has to say about this subject. And we're doing that because we want God's understanding to reign in our hearts, and we want to be as thoroughly biblically, uh, biblical as we can. And then number two, though, we want to do it in a way that helps. I want you to understand that, because too often, I think, people have approached the subject to, to like rub salt in the wound, and that's not helpful for anyone. And so what we want to do is to, to help, if possible, and to bring healing where we can. Second, and building off of that, part of the reason that we're approaching this in the manner that we are is because we recognize, as again Chris observed two weeks ago, that there are so many different points of view on this subject. Everyone in this room has been affected, or excuse me, has, a, has an opinion on this subject that is directly impacted by the culture in which we live, okay? So for example, on the one hand, we have the culture of the world. Our world today has a particular view of divorce that basically treats it very nonchalantly, right? I mean, it's just, it's just what happens. You know people, they just, it didn't work out, something went wrong, somebody you know, did something else, whatever, it doesn't matter. And so it's not unusual. Yes, it may be painful, but it's just what people do. You have that sort of very worldly approach to it. But then on the other hand, you have sort of a Christian cultural view of divorce, which depending on what kind of church that you grew up in or went to or attended, <laughs> could be all over the board here. I mean, just within Christianity, if you went to 10 different churches this morning and you, you, you listen to them or ask them about the subject, you're going to probably get about 10 different views, and I'm not really exaggerating that much. On the one hand, you'd have people who are like, well, divorce is just a sin. No matter what, under any circumstance, it should never happen. And if you've done it, uh, you know, you've committed the unpardonable sin kind of thing. That's how they treat it. And on the other hand of the spectrum, you, you, you have people who just, they don't care at all about it. They would have very much the world's mindset that it just doesn't matter. We just love people no matter what. And then in between, you'll have every other shade of that as well. So what that means is, is when you're in the room this morning, I'm recognizing up front that whether you're a believer or unbeliever, because I know both are in the room, whether you have grown up in church or you haven't, I know both are in the room, I've got a, a whole spectrum of potential uh, presuppositions that have been brought in here this morning that I want to try to interact with as best I can and, and to help us think through as best we can. And so what we've decided to do, and it's kind of hard, but it's the only way is we're asking everyone who's listening to this to, for these three messages, 
try your best to set aside your presuppositions, okay? Just set them aside. And some things you may find out that you, you thought correctly, and other things you may find out that you thought incorrectly. But whatever the case, do we want the scriptures to inform our view, or do we want our view to inform the scriptures, you know? <laughs> That's really where this one comes down on. So we want to, to try our best to, to let the scriptures speak for themselves. Third and finally here, I want to remind us as we begin to dig into the text this morning that these verses that I just read are not actually a passage about divorce at all. I mean, it is, but, but it isn't. Because what we, what we can't forget here is the context in which this passage appears. Because the context in which this passage appears shows us what the main point of the passage really is, and spoiler alert, it's, it's not divorce. That's not actually the main point of the passage. And to remind us of that and kind of get us back now into the regular pattern here in Mark, we've had some breaks with Mother's Day and the picnic and stuff, to, to get us back into that, I want to take a moment just to remember where we're at at Mark. So I'm going to show you an outline that if you've been here with us through Mark, you've seen numerous times. So this is kind of the big outline of Mark that we've been working through as Mark is introducing us to this man, Jesus, and wanting us to see that he is unlike any other man you've ever met. He is the Son of God, he is the King of all, and he is the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, what we just sang about. And in this third and the largest section of Mark's gospel where he's presenting Jesus as the Christ, he's further broken that section down into three subsections, what I've called wider ministry, uh, on the road, and final week. You can call them what you want, that's just, I'm, I kind of Name it like I see it, and that's what I saw in that passage. So we're, we're currently here in this one I've highlighted, the second subsection, where he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Christ. And again, let me show you another outline that you're familiar with. Here's an outline for that specific subsection that we're in. And you'll remember, perhaps, that this subsection is bookended, first and last, by stories of Jesus dealing with blind men. And in between those two stories of Jesus dealing with blind men, you find a whole bunch of blindness related specifically to who Jesus is and what it means to call him the Christ. That's the question he begins that section with. Who am I? Who do people say that I am? And they get it right. You're the Christ. Peter nails the answer, but doesn't fully understand what that means. And Mark shows that to us by giving us what I call these three failure cycles. Okay, remembering all this? These three failure cycles where three times Jesus foretells his death, always specifically always clearly, no questions about it, and yet, after each foretelling, the disciples immediately blow it. They express some failure to understand and properly apply what it means, you know, that Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to die and be rejected by the rulers and the elders. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again. They don't, they don't get it, and so after they blow it, then there's some kind or period of correction where Jesus specifically addresses the nature of the failure that just occurred, okay? And that happens three times here. We saw the second foretelling in chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, as they're walking on the road to Capernaum. Jesus is like, hey guys, just so you know, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise again, okay? He lays it all out for them. And what do they do? Instantly begin to discuss, you know, well, what, what is that going to mean for us? Then? No. They instantly begin to argue about who's going to be the greatest, the megas. Remember that? The megas in the kingdom of God. They want to know who's going to stand at the top of the pyramid. 
Who's going to be on the, the top rung of the ladder? They instantly begin to think hierarchy and structure, and they're arguing with one another about which of them is the greatest in this kingdom. And so when they finally get to the house there in Capernaum, Jesus asks them, so what, what are you guys talking about on the way? And they don't want to answer, right? Remember, they, they're silent. Hmm. Like that, and finally, like we were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And you remember Jesus' response? He says, in my kingdom, the least of all will be the greatest. The servant of all, that's the one who will be the greatest. He, he turns this paradigm that they have in their minds about greatness on its head. And, and in their world, they're like, what? Because the greatest is the guy at the top, not the guy at the bottom. The, the, the person who has, he's not a servant. He's the one who gets served. Jesus Jesus flips this thing around, and having dropped that bomb on them there, he, he begins, or Mark begins to give us these four scenes where we see this played out. The first three scenes, or in the first three scenes, you see Jesus purposefully siding with, identifying with people who, in that context of each scene, would have been the least. Okay, whoever you would not expect Jesus to jump on that bandwagon with, that's where he jumps. And on the fourth and final scene, you see someone where, or a situation where you would think Jesus would side with someone in that culture, and yet he doesn't. Everything that he does is like countercultural to what everyone in those passages would have considered. And so this passage that we're reading today is the second of those four scenes. That means that the main point of these verses is to show us Jesus siding with, identifying with, defending the least. Okay, you got that? And even though it plays out in the context of a question about divorce, divorce isn't the main subject. Jesus is siding with the least is. And so what I'm going to do in these next two sermons, because we've got today and one more to finish out this section, I'm going to kind of break them along those lines. Today, we're going to look at how, in this passage, Jesus is siding with the least. You've got to understand that to really understand everything else anyway. And then next time, when we come back, we'll try to understand divorce then from a larger biblical perspective. Okay, everybody? Everybody got what we're doing? You with me? All right, let's jump in. Mark begins by giving us a setting that has become, I think, almost an expected situation in Jesus' life. In fact, you even kind of hear Mark uh, alluding to that as he goes. He, he's now left Capernaum. He's heading south into Judea. He's crossed over the Jordan River to the east side, and he's somewhere over on that east side, beyond the Jordan River. And again, as was his custom, Mark writes, he taught them. And so this setting is, again, here, crowds around him, Jesus in the wilderness, somewhere on the east side of the Jordan, teaching all these people. And into this scene now comes the Pharisees. And if you've forgotten who the Pharisees are, the Pharisees are the chief religious leaders of the day, okay? These are the guys who are the spiritual establishment. These are the guys who are the authorities on everything that has to do with God and religion and spirituality and the scriptures. And they are also probably the group that hates Jesus the most because he doesn't tend to side with them too often. And ever since chapter 3, verse 6, and I'm going to put this back up here because it's kind of important for us today. Ever since way back in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees have been trying 
to destroy Jesus. It started like really, really early in his ministry because he would say things and do things that didn't jive with their understanding, their thinking, their actions, and their authority. And so they, they've been wanting to destroy him. And I reference this passage here specifically because this is the verse where Mark makes this little, it's almost like even a passing statement after one of Jesus' miracles, that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him as to how to destroy him. Now, who are the Herodians? Do you remember? These are the followers of King Herod, okay? King Herod, they're like the political party of the day, the ruling party. And so what you see here in chapter 3, verse 6, note this, is the chief religious party trying to come to some kind of terms with the chief political party as to how they can come together to kill Jesus. And I remind you of this specific alliance because there's something in me that says that this is kind of important for our passage this morning. Mark tells us that the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? One too far. For a man to divorce his wife. And before we can go any further, you you really have to stop and try to understand the significance of the question itself. Because it is so easy for us as modern American readers to just read something like that and apply all of our thinking, our words, our, our experience to it and not really then understand what's going on in the specific passage. And so I want to help you consider two contextual realities that this this passage is, is kind of packaged in. First, let's talk about the context of Herod. Okay, Herod himself. I mentioned him a moment ago. He's the king. Who's actually in charge here? It's not Herod, it's who? It's, no, Jesus is kind of the right answer, but not the right answer. Come on. Don't mess with me. Caesar, Rome, thank you. You of all people particularly, right? I mean, you just got fired. So, uh, Rome is the one actually in charge here. What they did, though, is when they came in and conquered an area, they would, they would take a person and they would set them up sort of like a puppet leader, a provincial leader to rule sort of in their place. And so he's not really a king. This isn't his land, his kingdom, but he's acting as the primary authority here. And so he does have a lot of power. And if you were here back in chapter 6, you'll remember the story of the beheading of John the Baptist by Herod. You remember that? Remember how uh, John had been imprisoned, imprisoned by Herod because his wife Herodias hated him? And, and one day Herod's throwing a party for a bunch of his nobles and, and he calls his niece slash stepdaughter in. It's complicated. I'll remind you a little bit of that in a moment. He calls her in to dance for them and he's so pleased, creepy word, by her performance that he makes an offer. I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And having been prompted by her mother, what exactly is it that she asks for? Yeah, it's kind of gruesome. The head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so reluctantly, Herod executes John. He has the power to do that. Now, I purposefully left out sort of an important detail in there, didn't I? Why exactly was John in prison in the first place? Do you remember what, what was it about him that Herodias hated so much? Does anyone remember? It was that he was doing what? Not baptizing. He was what? Challenging their marriage. Because prior to Herod and Herodias' marriage, she had actually been married to Herod's brother, 
And the two of them had had a child, this daughter that's now dancing for them at the party. And at some point, uh, this woman and Herod kind of get the hots for each other. And so she leaves her husband. He marries her. And now his niece becomes a stepdaughter. And Thanksgivings are awkward from evermore after that, right? Uh, in the Herod house. Uh, where is Jesus located? Do you remember what I said at the beginning? He is on which side of the Jordan? The west side close to Jerusalem or the east side away from Jerusalem? He's on the east side. Guess where Herod's headquarters and main territory is? On the east side of the Jordan. In other words, he's in Herod's backyard. What, what a random subject to be bringing up at this particular time in this particular place, right? I mean, just random. Totally, totally random. It, it seems likely that this question is being asked in this particular place, at this particular time, in an attempt to get Jesus in trouble with Herod. Now, we don't know that for a fact, but I mean, when you look at all of the details and, and the history, and what, I mean, what Mark himself has laid out, it just all seems to make sense that this is why this is occurring here. The Pharisees are partnering. They already we knew it. They partnered with the Herodians early on. They're trying to figure out how to kill him. Divorce got another prophet killed. Maybe it'll work twice. So that's the context of Herod. First one you had to understand to understand the question correctly. Here's the second context you have to understand. Let's consider the context of current Jewish thinking about divorce in Jesus's day. Okay, you got that? Jewish thinking about divorce in Jesus's day. And, and this is easy to do because it's very well documented. And I would guess, I would guess that if I were to ask you kind of on your own, so what do you think um, first century Jewish people would have thought about divorce? If you're like me, you would have been tempted to say, well, they probably were like America was 50 to 100 years ago, where divorce is kind of a, you know, kind of a no-no, right? You don't do it very often. You don't do it very easy. And people who do it are, are sort of pariah socially. They, they're outcast. If you thought that, you were wrong. You, you are dead wrong, very wrong, because divorce was not viewed negatively in first century Israel. In fact, it's viewed positively. And I put positively in quotes here because I don't mean good. It's not like a good thing that everyone should go out and try to do, right? It's not that sense of positively, I say it because it's considered as a basic and important right, catch this, for every man, every male, every husband. And you can see this in the question itself as it is asked by the Pharisees. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? You hear the you can hear it now that I've pointed it out to you. Uh, not is divorce lawful generally. It's asked specifically from the context of the man's perspective, or the husband's perspective. And this is no minor detail because in Jesus' day, divorce was something that only men could pursue, technically speaking. Okay, Women are not divorcing their husbands in Jesus' day. I say that there, there was a workaround on extreme occasion. If, if a situation was particularly severe or bad, a woman could go to the elders of her village or the elders of her family or clan or whatever, and she could appeal to them to go to her husband to force him to divorce her. Okay, did you follow that? <laughs> She's got to go to this group, 
to get them to put pressure on the guy to divorce her because even in a severe case, she can't do anything. She, she has to be divorced by her husband to get out of the marriage. Only he can do that. She can't. She has no power, no rights. And so of turn, in terms of who can divorce in Jesus' day, it's only the men. Now let's talk about the why of divorce in Jesus' day. You know the who now. Who can do it? Just the men. Why could they do it? Well, why could men uh, divorce their wives in Jesus' day? I'll say up front here that the answer to this question will show you just how disingenuous the Pharisees are being in this scenario. Because for them, and for the larger culture at hand, the question wasn't, is it, the question wasn't, is it lawful? That's what they ask him. The question is simply, when is it lawful? Under what circumstances can we do this? And you see, Jesus is so good dealing with people who are trying to trap him. You see Jesus uh, kind of get to this when he asks them a question here in verse 3. He says, well, what did Moses command you, right? He, he turns it back on them. What, what did Moses command you? In other words, you know, what does the law say? You're asking me if it's lawful, but you guys are the experts at the law. If anyone knows what the law says, it's you. So you tell me your opinion on the subject. They're not asking him because they don't know what they think. They, they have an opinion. He just wants them to reveal their hand, and they do. They say, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So there you go. That's their position. It's allowable. It's, it's lawful. Men can do this. The end. And, and what they're doing here is the one I accidentally skipped to. They're referencing a passage here in Deuteronomy 24. Now, it is much longer than what I'm going to work us through this morning. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to read the specific portion that includes the language that they're referencing here. Excuse me. And then you'll understand why I'm doing that in just a moment. But, but here is just one verse of a larger passage. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and he goes on to say that, that if she marries someone else, he can never marry her again. Okay, that's, I'm, I just condensed the whole rest of that section for you. He, if she goes out, she marries again, he can never have her back, all right? Done. The, the reason I didn't keep reading for us, though, is because from the perspective of the Pharisees, the rest of it doesn't really matter. Not at all to them. Because all of the legal reasoning they needed to defend their view of divorce is found here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And to help you understand their thinking, let me draw your attention to two specific phrases in this verse, okay? First, notice the words, if then she finds no favor in his eyes. Just focus on those words because some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day had latched on to this phrase alone to defend their view that a man had the right to divorce his wife for absolutely any reason he wanted. That simple. I mean, maybe she's not pretty enough. And so he, you know, maybe, he, or he's just found someone prettier. You know, he's like going to trade up kind of a model sort of thing. He just, whatever, that's fine. Uh, maybe she's not a good cook. Maybe she snored. Maybe she's a Patriots fan. I mean, there could be lots of reasons. It didn't really matter. In this view, which only focuses, keep, keep, keep that in mind, it only focuses on these words I've highlighted here. A man could divorce his wife for any reason at all, period. 
Okay, that's one camp. There's another camp, though, secondly, that focus their view on this phrase because he has found some indecency in her. And in this view, there had to be, uh, there had to be at least some kind of general moral concern, <laughs> even if it's really weak, okay? Perhaps some question about her past moral faithfulness or even her, uh, or, excuse me, her present moral faithfulness or even her past moral faithfulness. Practically, though, even though this is couched in a much more um, spiritual, moral, ethical-sounding kind of a, a framework, practically speaking, it worked pretty much like the first one because maybe in this view... You can't divorce your wife because she snores. However, you saw her talking to the butcher in the marketplace a little too long. And that's raised some questions and concerns in your minds. And maybe there's something going on there. And therefore, I think we need to have a divorce. Okay? You, you, can, you can stretch any situation. I actually, of the two views, I kind of like the first one better. And I'll explain why. It's because at least in that one, you don't have to purposefully impugn the moral character of your wife to divorce her. You can just say, she snores. I didn't, I'm tired of living with someone who snores. Some of you are like, amen. I want to be there too. Uh, don't do it. It's like the guy who was asked, um, he'd been married 50 years, and someone asked him, so what's the, uh, in those 50 years, have you ever considered divorce? He was like, no, never. Murder several times, but never divorce. Never Never divorce, you know. In, in the second view, you, you had to have some kind of question. You could twist it however you want about some moral issue or ethical issue. And if you did, you could have a grounds for divorce. Do you, you understand the two primary camps that were existing in Jesus' day? It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Either way you went, whichever opinion you took, and they, were, they would argue these two camps back and forth. Uh, either way you went, there was one technicality that you had to go through because Moses commands it, right? You had to give her a certificate of divorce. This is a legal document that made the divorce official. It had fairly standardized language by the time of Jesus' day, not that the scriptures required any language. You won't find like an example divorce certificate in the appendix of your Bible if you're going to look for it. Okay, it's not back there. Uh, but they had sort of created one that they, they uh, used. It said the husband is, you know, so-and-so is divorcing so-and-so for such and such a reason, and she is now free to marry anyone she wants. Okay, that was kind of how the certificate was, was written. And so in the Pharisee's mind, as long as you had a valid reason, uh, and as long as you gave her the certificate, you as a man, as a husband, are in complete obedience to God's word and righteous to divorce your wife for pretty much any reason you want. Okay? Does that maybe help you understand the context of the question just a, a little bit better than how we would have understood it on our own? Now, time to let you in on a, a dirty little secret here. Okay? Dirty little secret that the Pharisees do not want to acknowledge here in verse or in Deuteronomy 24. You want to know it? I'm, I'm going to tell it to you anyway. And keep this between us. Moses' command here in Deuteronomy 24 was actually given to protect women. Okay. Don't, don't tell anybody because the Pharisees don't want anyone to know. And let me, let me explain this as simply and as quickly as I can. And believe me, I feel like I am, I feel like I'm flying a thousand miles an hour trying to help you understand a big subject in a short period of time. So if you have further questions afterwards... 
come see me. Actually, go see Chris. Remember that. Remember that prior to Moses coming to deliver the people of Israel, they had spent the past 400 years where? In, in Egypt, right? So they spent 400 years in Egypt, and during that time, remember, they had no scriptures to read. They, they uh, had no words from God to guide them. We sometimes forget that fact when we read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus because it's talking about times before Egypt. But remember, Moses is writing all of that while they're out in the wilderness. So he, as, a, as the leader of the people, as God's spokesman, he's writing God's words to them, his, their, God's guidance to them about what it means to be a, a child of God, one of the people of the nation of God, while they're out there in the wilderness. So the time he takes them out of the wilderness, they look a whole lot more like Egyptians than they do the children of God, right? I mean, it's the context. It's where they live. It's where they grew up. And so apparently... And you see that throughout the five books. I mean, you keep running into incidents where they're doing weird stuff. They want to build calves and all kinds of things. So that's evident in the books. But apparently this was true of marriage as well. And as you look at the larger context of what's going on there in Deuteronomy, it seems that there were some husbands who were claiming that at some point in the past, true or not, their wives had been unfaithful to them. And as a result, they were kicking them out of the house. Well, this left the wife in a really tough spot. Because there's no, like, official divorce. She's just, like, kind of out in no man's land, literally, right? She's, like, out there. That was not in the notes. Out there. Uh, um, she, she, she maybe can go back to her family if they'll take her, but her character's been impugned, so can she, will they take her back? She can't stay with her husband. She can't marry someone else. She, she's, she's left in a position of limbo where she's got really no or very few options that are going to work for her. And and then even worse, while she's doing all this, even though she can't remarry, the guy, he might. He might go out and marry someone else or get a wife or whatever he wants. You know, he's doing his thing over here. And if eventually he gets tired of her, he's like, well, you know, the first wife wasn't so bad. I'll take her back. And she's got to come. She's bound to this. She's never been set free. And so she has to return. And it's just wrong. she's, She's in a terrible spot. And husbands could do this pretty much however they wanted. Um, Moses seems to be trying to address this scenario in a way to protect the women from having to live through this and go through this this situation. He's saying to the men that, okay, okay, if you're going to claim, true or not, and you can't, (laughs) who's going to prove it? Who's going to know? You're going to claim, though, that your wife has been unfaithful? Okay, all right. You're going to send her out? Okay, all right. You got to give her this. And you can never take her back again. You don't get to sit there and just hold her under your thumb for the rest of her life to treat her as you want, pull her in, push her out. You can't do that. If you're going to take this step, you're done. Got it? She's free. She goes. She can leave and be done with you. So, so what you see then is, I mean, and they literally had to write a certificate. He's making it like official for the nation. He, he's trying to protect her, protect the women from this kind of selfish sinful treatment. Unfortunately, uh, the Pharisees ignore the purpose of the command and use it rather to play semantic, legalistic games with the wording in order to justify the selfish, sinful treatment of women by husbands. Ironic, right? <laughs> but, that, but that's what's going on. And so, and so Jesus responds. He says to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, 
God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, what is Jesus doing here? Well, he begins by pointing out that the command given there in Deuteronomy 24, the one that the Pharisees have latched onto as their uh, excuse to do whatever they want. That's, and, and you can, if I could pause, you can see people do this with the scriptures all the time, right? They turn to the scriptures not to see what God actually wants for them, rather to see what they can get away with in life. Okay, that's, that's how the Pharisees are approaching this. They're, they've come to the scriptures to see what they can get away with, and, and he, he just begins by pointing out to them that the command in Deuteronomy 24 was given as a response to sin. And as such, it's not a good justification or basis on which to base further sinful actions. Okay, you got that? You can't use it like this. This isn't, this isn't right. He also clarifies which writing of Moses he was actually referring to, because there's a bigger one than this. So what, what Chris showed us last time. And Jesus now, you know, he said, what did Moses say? They instantly turned to Deuteronomy 24. Jesus now corrects them by flipping back a, a few extra pages into Genesis to write about what, or to show what Moses wrote about God's original plan for marriage. God made them male and female, and the man was supposed to leave his parents and cling to his wife. And if I could just stop and emphasize that word, because I think that's kind of the key in the context, that's what the men, men, he's talking to the men who are asking this question about man's rights in this matter, this is what the men were supposed to be doing clinging to their wife, holding fast to their wife to protect her and love her and keep her and to treat her as his own because the two have become one flesh. And what God has joined together, no man should separate. I think he's being specific when he says this here. I don't think he's being man in the general sense that we sometimes use that word. I think he's saying it specifically to the men of his context and of his culture because that's how they thought of themselves, that they just had the right to do this. This is what it was supposed to have been. A man loving his wife so much that the two are as one. Folks, that is not how the Pharisees or the culture of Jesus as a day viewed marriage and specifically how they viewed women. It just isn't. They were merely property that could be treated as, des as desired and discarded at will. And Jesus comes down on that view hard. He's doing the same thing Moses is doing. He's coming down trying to protect the women. Now, you know, this, this is where we've got to stop for today because I'm going to run out of time um, for what we're working through here. And we're going to keep going next time. So come back and because and, and, he's going to go into the house. He's got more to say. He's going to get in the house, and the disciples are going to be, well, what about this? And he's going to say, well, here's some more information, and he's going to keep talking. But I want, to, I want to just stop and think about what we've seen so far. First, please understand that Jesus is being asked a hostile question by a hostile party in hostile territory. Okay, If you forget that, if you lose that context, you begin to misunderstand all the things that are going on. This is not a group of people who are coming up to Jesus wanting to have a, 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 just a humble, honest, you know, can you please teach us? <laughs> Lord, teach us what we need to know. That's not the, 
That's not the context of all. At best, at best they're trying to make him pick sides with one of the two primary views so that he alienates the other side. At worst, they're trying to get him killed. And so because he's being this, asked this hostile question by hostile people in a hostile territory, you see him respond accordingly. And if you don't remember that, I'm telling you, you're not going to be able to read the passage correctly, so please check that one, keep it there. Second, and coming out of that then, we have to recognize that Jesus isn't trying to say all that can be or should be said about the subject of divorce. He just isn't. Again, that's not the question that's being asked of him. It's not the context that he's being asked in. Teach us everything you can. Like, that wasn't what was said. They're trying to nail him down and trap him. And so he is responding in light of that. He's not, he's not trying to give them a full-fledged understanding of God's view of divorce here. He's just responding to a hostile question. In fact, as I said, you, you get a glimpse of that in the next verses, the ones we didn't get to this, this morning. As soon as they get to the house, the disciples ask about it again, and he starts talking about more stuff that he didn't say there. So there, proof. There's more to say. He just isn't trying to say it in that context. And so to come up with a larger, complete, biblical view of divorce to to see everything the scriptures say, well, heaven help us, that's our, that's our task next time, all right? So pray for me. We're working on that one there. Um, third and most importantly, okay, this is the big one. What we're seeing here is Jesus doing the very thing that he did in the last scene, the very thing he's going to do in the next scene. He is defending, identifying with, and siding with the least in this scenario. Because, again, Women here are being treated like property by men, nothing more. Not, not all women. I'm not saying that like every woman in, in, in Israel is like getting kicked out of their house. I'm sure there were very loving husbands and good relationships and good marriages. But recognize that every woman in Israel at least had the possibility of being treated like this. Because that's, the, that's the, how they think about it. That's the culture. That's, that's the context. They, they, were, they were nothing. They had no rights, no voice, no power, nothing Jesus is here coming to their defense. He's saying to the men that God's intention for them was to love their wives, to love, to cling to them, to hold fast to them, to become one flesh with them forever, not just to throw them away like some old pair of shoes that they're tired of. That's not how they're supposed to be treated. And I would have loved, I would have loved to have seen the faces of the Pharisees as he's responding, because I'm sure that's not exactly what they were hoping for, right? They're, they're hoping that he's going to come out and say something really inflammatory that the Herodians probably, I, they, Mark doesn't say this, but I kind of picture the Herodians in their t-shirts back behind them, like listening, waiting for some like news to take back to Herod or even better Herodias. Uh, they're, they're expecting, or hopefully that he'll take a side one with the other and then the other party will get mad at him and oh, it's going to be Jesus just never seems to respond like people expect. He just never does. As he told the disciples, in his kingdom, the least will be the greatest. The first, they're going to be last. The last, they'll be first. And this is just another way in which Mark is showing us that this kingdom that Jesus is bringing is so much more and so different than anything we've seen, anything that they expected. Now, we're going to put a pause, okay, until next time. But I just wanted to make kind of a final comment here. Um, you realize that women are still treated like this, right? Hopefully not in your homes, um, though there might be a few of you in here who need a good old-fashioned um, discipleship lesson or something, but uh, around the world to this day, women are still treated like this. Whether we're talking about human trafficking, 
sex workers, rape, abuse, whatever, women are still treated like property to this day. And if anyone should be standing up for them, it should be the church. We may not always have opportunity. We may not always even know when it's going on. I get that. I, I'm not trying to like send you out of here with a guilt trip where we got to go find somebody to like help. Like, if you can, do it. If you know it, stop it. But I'm just saying that like Jesus, we have to stand up for the voiceless. The gospel demands that. It demands it because in, even in our own situation, we were the, the voiceless, the weak, the powerless, right? And who came and stood up for us in God's court? Jesus did. He's the one who came and saved us. And without him, we'd have no hope. He's doing that for others throughout this section. It, it's only right that we as the church should have the loudest voice in that battle too. To stand up for those who have no voice, to do things for those who have no power. We're just being like Jesus when we do that. And so I would encourage you, I would urge you, come back, let's keep, keep this going, but be thinking and praying for those people even now. Remember how the gospel should be impacting that. And by God's grace, we'll see some of those evils one day put to rest forevermore when Christ returns. We bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for just helping us work through this section and giving us a, a larger understanding of what's going on here. Jesus, we just step back and are amazed how you continually do what's not expected. You continually come to the aid of those who everyone else discards and couldn't care less about. Here's this, these men, these religious leaders of all people defending this. And this is nothing that you intended. This was nothing that you ever planned it's sin, pure and simple. And you come again to the aid of the helpless. It reminds us of how you came to our aid, how you came to us who had no voice, no hope, no, no power, and you saved us. In like manner, then, we should be praying for those who have no voice, stepping in when we can, helping when we can, recognizing that in doing so, we are pursuing a life that is like your own. And so thank you for what we've seen this morning. Help us as we continue to work through this to get a, a larger picture. And for those in the room, if there's anyone who's coming out of here today, if Satan is attacking their, their minds, their hearts, they've been impacted by divorce and they're discouraged, please, Spirit, fight that. Help them to, to see the larger thing that you come to the broken. You heal what's, what's been broken, what's been, been destroyed by sin, perhaps. You can come to to hurting hearts and bring healing. And I just pray that you would do that for them today. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.